Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University, and I welcome you to our most recent webcast. Uh, this features uh, Thomas Philipson, a professor at the University of Chicago, but I welcome you to come to our website at www.yaleruddcenter.org to find other webcasts that we have. Uh, it's a delight for me to welcome Dr. Philipson. He's a professor in the Harris School and a member of the Department of Economics and the Law School at the University of Chicago. Uh, he was educated uh, in Sweden and then received a PhD in economics from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and shortly thereafter joined the faculty of the University of Chicago where he's risen through the ranks to the rank of professor. But in the meantime, he spent some time visiting as a scholar at places like the World Bank and he served as senior economic advisor to the head of the Food and Drug Administration and subsequently as a senior economic advisor to the head administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. It also happens, so happens, that Professor Philipson was the first economist, at least in my, to my knowledge, who started thinking about the obesity issue and writing scholarly articles from an economic point of view. And his work has stimulated an awful lot of thought and, and other economists to take on this issue, which I think is a real boom to the field. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the following. You, some of your initial work and subsequent work has used economic analysis to describe why obesity is occurring. Can you tell me some of the things you've found in that? Well, we have ex essentially stressed uh, that the growth of obesity or weight uh, over time uh, is highly related to economic incentives. So even though my, most people outside of economics would not think that this has much to do with economics. And essentially what we argued is that there's been a, two forces, uh, main forces that are operating to generate this growth in weight and uh, that those forces are going to be pretty hard to tame in the future. Uh, one force concerns essentially the fact that agricultural uh, uh, production has a, a gain in productivity so that we used to have a much larger share of the economy producing food for everyone but that was actually less food than a very small share of the economy today producing all, all the food for us. That's come about essentially from gains in, pro in productivity in the agricultural sector and uh, when those gains have lowered the cost of producing foods prices have been lowered by manufacturers uh, through competition uh, and people presumably face a lower price in going from price in time and resources in going from being full from being uh, hungry to full than they did in the past where they had to produce the food on their own and have to prepare it on their own so the falling price in calories is one uh, major impetus, presumably, when the demand for things go up with the lower of the prices, so that's presumably an important factor. That cannot be the only factor, however, because if you look historically, uh, it's been uh, uh, the fact that even though weight has gone up over time, we've seen changes in food consumption go up and down. So it's not necessarily that weight gains are correlated over time with the intake of calories. Actually, the correlation is pretty poor. So that leads you to our second argue, or force that we argue are important, which is essentially that other types of technological change have raised the price of spending calories. Physical exercise uh, has essentially 
become less prevalent. And that we think is uh, where people mo spend most of their waking time is at work, and work has essentially gone from being uh, physically demanding in terms of manual labor, where people spend a lot of calories at work and therefore got rewarded for exercising, to uh, not physically demanding through better technologies, making us more computerized and more productive, but at the same time uh, more sedentary. So not only has the price of calories gone down, uh, on not, the price of spending calories ha has gone up, and that I think is an important uh, way to interpret the the, re the historical data, which has shown, uh, particularly in the post-World War period in the 40s and 50s, dramatic gains in weight in the population with declining food consumption occurring exactly at this point when we had changes, dramatic changes in, in work environments for people. So I think those are the two forces that we've been studying. We've been done in, doing micro-evidence studies as opposed to aggregate time series evidence studies on the effects of work on weight and find uh, quite substantial effects consistent with this interpretation. You know, one talk I heard you give many years ago when you first started working on this, uh, you made the point about uh, people being paid to exercise and now having the pay. Ex explain what that means. I, you did explain it to some extent, but it's such a pithy little thing that I, that I think is quite Well, memorable. essentially, if you wanted to make money in the past, you had to sweat at work. Mm -hmm. And so you got financially rewarded for exercising. And today, you don't you pay to exercise in the sense that not so much in money, but in foregone leisure time. And the example I like to draw upon is essentially if you have a small kid and, you, and you've been sitting in the office all day, you have a choice between leisure, uh, spending time, leisure time with your kid, or spending leisure time exercising. Most people opt for the former rather than the latter, understandably. But because they used to get their exercise at work, now the exercise has gone down. But we've seen, so basically the price of exercise, you used to be rewarded financially, and now you pay a higher price to exercise in terms of foregone uh, leisure time has made the price of exercise gone, uh, uh, gone up. Now, there's been substitution, and the gym and jogging revolution that came in, in the, you know, just after uh, we became more sedentary after work, at work, it's a natural interpretation of uh, the fact that on-the-job exercise has gone down. We're shifting now exercise to off-the-job in terms of leisure time going up. Now, what I've argued, and I th think the evidence is pretty clear on that, is that total exercise, that is to say on-the-job and, and leisure, has gone down because people are not exercising as much off work as they used to exercise on work. Right. So... The, from a simplistic point of view, you've done very sophisticated analyses and shown, as you just said a moment ago, that one of the reasons obesity exists is the cost of calories has gone down and the cost of work has gone up, physical work has gone up. And it, it would be hard to argue that either of those two changes is bad. So the fact that calories are cheaper, food is cheaper, means that hunger could potentially be less of a problem and people could take something they need, namely food, use less of their disposable income to buy it and have money around to do other things. And all the technological advances, of course, means that we have energy-saving devices all over and that allows the economy to be more productive. So from an economic point of view, then, would you consider something like obesity just a bothersome consequence of progress um, whereas overall the consequences are quite positive. Yeah, as an economist, uh, the, the, the starting point to that answer would be 
if you're an economist, if something is really prevalent, you look for benefits that outweigh the cost in engaging in that activity. Presumably, people do it because they benefit more than the, the cost from doing something. So something very prevalent, such as obesity, obesity, even though you only hear people talking about the cost of obesity, whether it's private cost or public cost or Medicaid and Medicare, and presumably there's some offsetting benefits that make us engage in that behavior. Well, like and, eating good-tasting food, for example. Well, also uh, earning more income at a sedentary job right. and, and, and therefore not exercising that much. That, I think, is the most important one. Uh, <clears throat> now, so I like to look at the side effect of obesity uh, as a health side effect in some sense, similar to what occurred in transportation when the cars came in. Cars came in and improved transportation dramatically, but presumably reduced health through highway mortality. Presumably, the benefits of better transportation outweigh the increased highway mortality, and uh, highway mortality is a side effect of economic progress in that respect. And I view obesity being a very similar way, a side effect of economic progress of being more productive and therefore more sedentary. So we can produce more stuff with the same people, mm -hmm. but the way we do that is through automation and machines, and basically we're not sweating as much. Okay, so I'm counting on you helping me understand the, the economic philosophy behind some of these things. So at the default would be that if, if people are, are eating more and exercising less and they gain weight as a consequence, that there's some benefit to them that outweighs the, the downsides of it, and that's why the condition exists in the first place. Um, and so the question I have is when do you get in and intervene? When do you consider the, the kind of market not working in, in a positive enough way where it, the government intervention would be justified. Yeah. In general, maybe not with obesity, but in general, and then we can think about whether it applies to obesity. Yeah. In general, economists, I think, differs from the public health community um, uh, or the medical profession in that uh, it's clearly a stated goal uh, uh, of economics to increase efficiency, and I'll talk about what that means, as opposed to maximizing health. So many people uh, that I talk, to, uh, talk with outside economics think that because you have a health problem growing, such as the op uh, obesity epidemic, that directly justifies public intervention to try to control it. Uh, because public policy or government activities should be aiming at maximizing health. Maximizing health cannot be mean uh, a sensible policy objective. There's many things we can do to improve health that we don't do, such as closing, in the transportation case, closing highways would improve health, but presumably the benefits lost are larger than the uh, cost gain. So basically, no one can sensibly argue that we should maximize health. There's a lot of things we shouldn't be doing if we try to maximize health. Uh, even the people who are actually advocating such policies, they should not be on highways, they should not, there's a lot of things that they shouldn't be doing. Okay. Uh, and they wouldn't agree with that. So economists look at, essentially, when people's private behavior, which presumably reflect how they trade off earning more at work and not exercising, spending time with your kid at home after work, rather than being in good shape, uh, the former being more desirable than the latter, those private trade-offs, when those private trade-offs inflict costs on others that they don't take into account, then that's when economists get worried that there might be people losing more from a certain activity, in this case obesity, than the people engaging in that bad behavior uh, uh, 
are actually gaining from it. So what, what are economists thinking about whether those conditions are met? Well, basically, in the case of obesity, uh, we, uh, the main discussion, and this doesn't only come from economists, it's come from the public health community as well, the main rationale for public intervention into this problem at all has been uh, that government finances most of health care, and it is, it is a fact that obese people cost more in terms of health care on Medicaid and Medicare, the two main uh, public programs, one for the poor and one for the old. <coughs> it is a fact that people have estimated that about between 7 and 9% uh, health spending would be about 7 or 9% lower if everyone was at the medically ideal weight. So that there are, you know, taxpayer consequences in health care spending for more obese individuals uh, that are not presumably taken into account by obese individuals and themselves, and therefore you have an issue. And that has been uh, pretty much the only argument put forward. Now, if, you, if, if you're an economist uh, and you think that fiscal effects or fiscal budget effects are important, presumably you would be interested in all programs. So economists have pointed out that for example, which is very analogous to cigarettes, that cigarette smokers die more uh, quicker and therefore save on Social Security. And people think that's absurd. We shouldn't be talking about that. Uh, but that, I think, only points out that the fiscal effects is not really what we care about because we would care about obese people saving us money in that case if Social Security, the offset on Social Security was larger than the gains in Medicare and Medicaid. But I don't think people are open to that discussion because the real objective is not really to save public money for healthcare spending or public fiscal effects. There's some other motive that drives the public health community to limit obesity than being upset at obese individuals for costing them tax dollars. Okay, so from an economic point of view, if you'd like to incur that 7 to 9% benefit, by reducing the population to normal weight, would you then say what what programs or interventions do we have at our disposal to actually reduce population weight? And do those things in turn have externalities? And how do we balance these things out? Is well, that the way you think about yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Basically, the cost of the, I mean, the first thing that has to be true is that the people, you know, are not taking into account some costs. If, if they operate in a market, they're not taking into account some costs uh, when they're acting in a self-interested behavior. So pollution is a good example where firms are not individually hurt by polluting more, but it presumably raises profits by lowering the cost of production. Uh, and so we have, you know, mandated uh, activities through governments to try to discipline them so that the people who enjoy the environment, the argument must be that they are hurt more than uh, either the company gains in profits or the consumer gains in lower prices from having cheaper means of production. Okay. And that is an open debate. It's very hard usually to establish that there's a real externality. And the question is then if, you know, if the government goes in and fix it, fixing it, is it costing more than the, you know, the problem in the, in the first hand? And that's uh, in the obesity case. Uh, the interventions that have been discussed, we have argued in our work, uh, have, uh, you know, the evidence on the impact of those uh, interventions is pretty limited. But um, one main intervention that's been discussed concerns education. And most public programs are essentially information campaigns or public education campaigns. And we've argued that 
that as an underlying force of the obesity epidemic that we don't know enough about how to consume food uh, or why exercise is good, I think is uh, uh, limited in terms of uh, its impact on uh, obesity. We become more informed over time, but yet we become heavier. Let's talk about some non-educational ways to sure. approach this problem. Um, first of all, I, we're not in our at the Rudd Center not big believers in education as the solution because you simply couldn't, even if it were effective, and there's not much not evidence of that, but even if it were effective, there's not much chance that we could ever fund it in enough uh, uh, with, with enough support to be able to compete with all the forces that are driving people in the other direction. So from an economic point of view, not that you would personally favor these things, and I, I know you have your own feelings about this, but let's just say that somebody came to you and said, we really want to harness what e economists know to try to deal with the obesity problem, and our goal is to reduce obesity and make people healthier. There are a lot of things that have been proposed, mm -hmm. taxing foods, for example. Um, changing subsidy policy so that fruit and vegetable farmers get more subsidies than their corn and soybean farmers. Mm -hmm. uh, tax incentives that cities could offer so supermarkets could open up in inner cities to drive down price of foods for the poor. Mm -hmm. There are all these, all these things have been proposed, but I don't think there's been enough thought to whether they would work or not. Well, how, what would you suggest would be the logical place to start? Well, the problem with taxing food is that it's what economy calls regressive. It hits the poor more than the rich. So, you know, as a share of income, food is a much higher share of income for the Bill Gates share of income that goes to food consumption is very small. Right. <laughs> and, and But a poor uh, individuals is about a third uh, or even more sometimes. So the the share of your income that gets devoted to food consumption goes down with income. What if uh, the, I understand the point, what if uh, the revenue were earmarked for driving down the cost of healthier foods so that it became well, let, me, let me just uh, less uh, let me just finish that okay. thought okay. But, okay. which is for taxation what we really care what we don't want to discourage is poor people getting cheap food uh, and taxation discourages that what we really want is to tax not consumption but overconsumption mm -hmm. okay so we essentially want to say when you consume more than 4,000 calories a day, you're going to cost a little bit more to go from 4,000 to 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 uh, than it did uh, going from 1 to 2 to 3. Okay, And obviously that can't be enforced in any in – in it can be enforced, but it's too expensive to enforce. So nonlinear taxes, uh, you know, what we call nonlinear, meaning that the tax rate changes with the amount, should be the issue for obesity. That should be in, a, in an ideal world where it's enforceable. If you want to tax away this behavior, that's how you should tax it. Uh, you know, assuming the goal is to reduce obesity. I'm taking that as a given. Right. So, uh, so generally, I think that's very, very difficult. And then you're trading off. You're making poor people spend a lot more on food against, you know, limiting obesity. And that's sometimes, you know, some, sometimes people, are, if people would be starving because of the taxes, that would be an extreme consequence. And right. I, I think that's a very big problem with, with food taxation in general. Should you subsidize better food or tax worse foods? That would certainly, uh, I mean, the evidence is that that's clearly, uh, you know, consumption clearly moves towards cheaper foods, and that would increase cer certain foods over others. There's no question about that, I think, uh, uh, in terms of uh, <coughs> that price differences many times drives how people change their food patterns. 
Uh, if you wanted to do it again, if you wanted to subsidize good foods, uh, you would get rid of the regressivity problem because then you would make it you know, cheaper for poor families to actually uh, consume their meals as opposed to taxing that. And that, I think, is the main issue with taxation, that it, you, can't, you can't separately tax poor families in some sense. Right, and when I, because I've talked about the idea of food taxes, but of course I'm not an economist, so my knowledge on the topic is fairly superficial. But I'm compelled by the regressive, the regressive nature of these taxes potentially, and it would be nice not to, not to incur the damage from that. But it does seem to me that if it became at least as affordable for a family to buy food, but the, the, the taxes and subsidies would be used in a way that drove people toward healthier choices, that then something like a tax could be justified. The only problem is that the, that the government will decide what's healthy. That's, I, th I think, is the main problem. The government will steer what, what we deem healthy. And, uh, and as we know, and when I was at FDA, it was clear that there's a huge disagreement in the nutritionist community <laughs> on what a good diet is. That's right. And, and, and uh, people have very different opinions, and, and and there's conflicting studies all over the place. We should eat this or not. We should not eat that, and then it changes. So I think it's, I mean, putting a government uh, program in place which subsidizes, quote-unquote, healthy foods uh, <clears throat> is a little troublesome because who decides what's healthy or not? And that's going to be heavily influenced, presumably, by the uh, different parts of the agricultural lobby. Right, and then another problem, of course, is whether government would actually use the earmarks as intended, because we know from the tobacco settlement money that states have had a huge influx of income from these things, but they haven't all used it on anti-tobacco programs, which was the original intent. Well, even, I mean, I, economists are not so concerned ab about earmarking tax revenue. I mean, you can generate, you can get taxes from uh, multiple sources. On the federal level, it's mostly, you know, uh, uh, from income taxes, uh, the vast majority of federal revenue comes from income taxes, and, and there's no reason why you should actually have one program being funded by taxes on another program. That doesn't, for an economist, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So we're not so concerned about whether things get earmarked or not. Okay, so it doesn't yeah. matter so much where the money comes yeah. from as long as it's yeah. available to yeah. fund your program. Okay, do you um, see a difference in uh, externalities, whether government should intervene, um, and uh, whether economic principles should be applied when comparing adult versus child obesity. Can an argument be made that there's something special about obesity in children and that that justifies some sort of intervention where that may not be the case with adults? Well, there's certainly been a rapid growth in obesity among kids, and we've argued that's not much different uh, from the argument we've been uh, stressing for on-the-job exercise going down. That is to say that leisure activities have had dramatic technological changes as well. In particular, kids now, uh, the, the way I like to put it is that the kids play the games on the computer that they used to play in the yard in some sense, that the special effects, you, you can't really get those in the yard. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, they like the stuff that's cooler on the computer, what they can do. And uh, so presumably they choose to computer over playing outside, meaning that they're better off. They like it. It's more fun now than it used to be to be a kid. But also as a side effect, they're not as uh, healthy because they don't spend a lot of calories. And food is really cheap so they can consume it. So uh, <clears throat> in that sense, I think technological change is the main impetus of child obesity as well as, as adult obesity. 
Now, naturally, following the cigarette case, uh, people have, and in many other areas as well, have argued that, you know, uh, certainly restricting advertising to kids and things like that has a role. There, there's a general, in economics, there's a general uh, issue, which is essentially, you know, the government is not only caretaker of kids. Presumably, parents came, care a lot more about their kids than the government does. And the question is, does the government have an advantage over parents in, uh, in uh, steering kids' behavior? And so, again, it's the private sector versus the public sector. And the question is, certain activities it might be because parents can't control TV commercials. They have no way of controlling that. And if kids are influenced by that, that might be a, a public issue. Uh, <clears throat> on the other hand, parents would be steered towards channels that didn't have that kind of advertising. So if parents really hated it and really didn't want their kids to see it, uh, then presumably they will, uh, certain channels would, uh, would sort of uh, market themselves to being uh, uh, child-friendly, if you want, uh, in some way or another. So it's, uh, the market could certainly respond to those kind of incentives. But it did, just a mere lack of that kids can take care of themselves is, a, is obviously not a role for public intervention because then we, have the pub, then we would only have, you know, we wouldn't have any parents taking care of kids at all. We would have the government do everything for kids. It's interesting that you use marketing as one of the examples in, in the previous discussion. It's, it's been our point at the Rudd Center that parents' ability to protect their children from messages and marketing that might damage their health has been systematically eroded over the years because when I was a child, it was Saturday morning serial commercials on and and cartoons. It's the internet. Yeah. Well, it's, it's <laughs> the internet, it's product placements in video games. Now when a child's playing a video game and they drive their car past the billboard and there's a crash scene, the billboard's going to be for some soft drink. Um, the American Idol judges have Coca-Cola glasses sitting right in front of them, a multi-million dollar exchange. And so it's harder and harder for parents to, uh, to, to curtail that exposure for children. And we believe that that's one argument for government intervention because the parental authority has been systematically eroded. Well, economists have, don't have a, they have a very poor way of, of analyzing advertising. Until recently, there's been some advances in that area because you generally economists take wants as given and, and look at the consequences of people like certain things and, and it's differentially costly to produce and what's going to be sold and not sold, for example. So when you talk about advertising, you, you're changing essentially people's willingness to pay for things, which could be handled in economics. It just hasn't been handled very well in the past. But Gary Becker and other colleagues uh, have actually, I think, developed methods for handling it in a better way than to analyze, essentially, the, the welfare consequences. of. Because do you pay attention to the uninformed person's preferences or do you pay attention to the advertised person's preferences? Mm -hmm. That matters for whether it's a good or bad thing, whether the advertising takes place. And mm -hmm. economists have had the schizophrenia about, you know, who should we pay attention to? We can't really deal with this until you put it, put it in this new framework. But that's a little bit beyond this topic. But I think economists are usually not very good at talking about normative aspects of advertising. Uh, for that reason, because we're so brainwashed in thinking about what happens when you have certain preferences uh, and what are the implications of that, not is it good or bad to change those preferences. That we're very poor to, or uh, we're very untrained to talk about those issues. Interesting. Let's end with the following. If you could write the script for the next generation of economic research, 
on obesity and nutrition-related issues? What do you think it would look like? And what sort of studies do you think economists are now prepared to do that might really help inform this debate? Well, I think more precise studies of public of public interventions would be very, very useful. For example, if I had the money and funding, I, you know, running a simple education experiment, social experiment where people were randomized to get education, some people randomized not to get education as a control group, follow the BMI over time and see whether it actually had an effect, would, in my opinion, my prior would be that that would lead to, you know, strong evidence and support of that education is not the way to go. I would be very surprised if nutrition and exercise information given out to people in such a matter in the treatment group would lower their BMI five years out compared to the con uh, control group. I mean, I'm, I'm open to the evidence suggested or delivering that, but my prior would be very strong that it wouldn't. You know, so, I, and I'm going to interrupt, and I know you have more thoughts on this, but here's a magnificent opportunity for economists to have impact. There are programs going on all over the country to try to address the obesity issue, some educational, some other, some others doing different things, but they're occurring, but very rarely are they collecting cost data. So you know the impact, but you don't really know the cost. And so the sort of information that I expect the economists would most want to have is not being routinely collected and really could be. And that would be some immediate change in the way the government funds studies and if they demanded cost-effective analysis, then we'd learn a lot more. Well, I think in general in the weight control area, we're grappling for any kind of behavioral interventions that work. It seems like a lot of behavioral interventions just don't work. It seems to be that they're not very effective. So just knowing they're not effective, you it presumably costs money, you know it's a bad deal. So basically, I think in general, I, it's such a hard, I mean, that points to, which we're not adverse to uh, uh, sort of thinking about, is, you know, there's a certain self-control issues in, in weight control. And the way that's manifested is that people basically try to commit themselves. I'm One example would be bariatric surgery, where the same kind of food intake could be done by behavior, but they don't have the willpower so that they basically do it through surgical commitments in some sense. And Weight Watchers and other things, other type, other type of activities where people uh, seem, to be able, seem to basically uh, want to restrict themselves in some sense. Right. Uh, and that's very hard to interpret without any commitment. But I don't think those kind of issues is the source of the epidemic because they should be prevalent in Africa, and they're not. Uh, Africa is very thin compared to the U.S., not because of differences in commitment issues. It's because of different economic conditions that drive obesity, I think. Right. So in my enthusiasm, I interrupted you before you finished your thoughts about what you would love to see economists do if, if in the next generation of work. Are there things other than evaluating the costs and benefits of intervention programs? Well, I think the cause, we, it's very hard to study what the exact causes has been of, uh, of the obesity growth. I think in a long run perspective, it would be very difficult to uh, take an opposing view to some of the arguments that we've laid out. Uh, it seems uh, almost self-evident. In the short run, the rapid growth of obesity in the tail of the weight distribution in the recent decades, some people have argued is uh, uh, of the two sources that we pointed out, declining food prices and, and uh, increased uh, calories uh, or cost of spending calories, that the first one seems to be more important as uh, evidenced by David Cutler and colleagues, uh, Justice Shapiro and Ed Glaser, I believe, were the colleagues, <coughs> who uh, um, uh, 
try to indicate that um, f uh, declining uh, uh, costs in, in preparing foods were, were then passed on to the consumer was a major source of, of the uh, gain. But it's very, very hard to study, I think, because there's also generally accepted that very small changes on a daily basis can have big cumulative effects. So 100 calories a day in terms of a trade-off of, of net calories a day could have very long, you know, yearly or five-year effects. And so, you know, the fact that you're just sitting down and emailing and not walking to your colleague's office today in the, you know that could be a certain amount of cash. It could be simple, small things that technology generates in terms of sedentary uh, activities that could have big uh, weight effects. That's not the source of the you know the four or five hundred pound people. That's clearly a commitment issue, and, and but it's certainly a very important source of the average uh, weight of the population. I think mm -hmm. so. Studying the positive forces that contribute to obesity, I think we have a long way to go still. Well, thank you so much for joining us in okay. this podcast. Thanks for having me. I'd like to thank uh, Professor Thomas Phillipson from the University of Chicago, an economist in the Harris School at Chicago and a faculty member in the Department of Economics and the Law School for joining us on this webcast. And as a reminder, our website, www.yalerudcenter, has a list of the other podcasts that we've done. And they're excellent resources, uh, not only podcasts, but other things that the Rudd Center provides. So I urge you to uh, join us on the website. We also have a free email newsletter that's available to anybody who wishes to get it. Thank you very much.